And this morning, as we are approaching fall, did you guys feel fall in the air? My husband's so excited. Fall is his favorite time of year. I am a warm weather gal, so I prefer my sunshine and my warmth. But I always get excited because I'm like, baby, it doesn't matter. One of us is going to be happy because he likes fall and winter, and I'm more a spring-summer kind of gal. So, um, but fall is in the air, and also it's approaching one of our favorite days, which is Reformation Day, October 31st. So in the spirit of coming fall and Reformation Day, um, I have a little uh, something to share with you as we look forward to that. So Katerina von Bora was the daughter of impoverished nobles and had been sent to a nunnery at the age of five. Later in life, at the age of 16, she joined an abbey and officially became a nun. This was a common practice for families, both noble and poor, to give their daughters to the church, mostly because the families either could not afford to pay for dowries, to pay for the food and care of a girl who could not provide an income, or afford to give their children an education on top of having their basic needs met. The year is 1523. Martin Luther is now infamous at this time for stirring the pot of the Catholic Church. Katerina is a nun becoming increasingly unhappy with her life. Katerina and her fellow nuns begin hearing of this infamous Martin Luther and begin studying his teachings. Reading Luther's teachings led to the nuns' true conversion to the Christian faith. They realized that they no longer wanted to be nuns and no longer believed celibacy to be a directive from God. But leaving the cloistered life was a death sentence. Should they escape and be caught, they would be tortured or killed by the church as it was a direct violation of their monastic vows. The nuns bravely wrote to Martin Luther asking for his assistance. Providentially, he managed to find a compassionate tradesman to provide the way of escape, a wagon of fish barrels to hide in as it dropped off goods at the monastery. Luther took responsibility for the runaway nuns, finding them husbands at their consent for all but two a nun who found a position as a school headmistress, and Katerina. He unsuccessfully attempted to marry her off twice. She finally announced that she would only trust to be married to one of his colleagues or to Luther himself. Luther, up to this point, had been unwilling to marry, saying in a letter to a friend, my mind is far removed from marriage since I daily expect death and the punishment due to a heretic. At some point, he decided he would marry his Katie. And in his words, it was to please his father and spite the devil and the Pope. <laughs> Great reasons to get married. He was 42, and she was a feisty, opinionated 26-year-old. Luther had previously been given the Black Cloister, this is a, a building, in Wittenberg, Germany, for a home. Katie cleaned and brought order to the large establishment. The Black Cloister became a kind of hotel and boarding house for students and visiting scholars, 
Up to 30 could be housed. There were 30 different bedrooms in this cloister, so Katie had run of it all. So it was a boarding house for students and visiting scholars, as well as a Luther's family home. Katie oversaw the running of the household and capably managing the finances, freeing Luther's time for his study, writing, and teaching. Katie was a cook, a gardener, a fruit grower, a horse breeder, a beekeeper, a vintner, a fisher, and also made very good beer. You have to realize at this time, beer was much more sterile than the drinking water. All of this in addition to being a mother of six children as well as taking in four orphans. Luther affectionately came to call Katie the morning star of Wittenberg since she rose so early, usually at 4 a.m., to begin her day's activities. Martin was Katie's spiritual guide and encouraged her in her biblical studies. You need to remember this is a day and age where women's education was not valued at all, nor was it ever encouraged. So it was very unusual that Martin would, would invest in his wife and encourage her in her biblical studies. He, in fact, would pay her 50 golden, which was the money of his day, if she would read through the Bible in a year. So really encouraged her, encouraged her to memorize scripture, especially Psalms. Katie, in turn was an encourager to Luther and capably treated his numerous physical ailments as well as comforted him in his times of depression. Martin was normally a cheerful man, but he did have terrible fits of depression. The Pope was after him. His colleagues were bickering among themselves. He felt the heavy pressure that came with being a professor, a pastor, a husband, a father, and he was often in excruciating pain from kidney stones. He at one time was so depressed that his friends recommend him go away for a change of air to see if he could get relief. He went away, but came home as miserable as ever. And when he went into the sitting room, his wise wife was sitting there, dressed in black, and her children round about her, all in black. Oh, oh, said Luther, who is dead? Why, said she, doctor, have you not heard that God is dead? My husband, Martin Luther, who would never be in such a state of mind if he had a living God to trust to. Then Martin burst into a hearty laugh and said, Kate, you are a wise woman. I have been acting as if God were dead and I will do so no more. Go take off thy black. <laughs> so how many of us this morning would be horrified if somebody came up to us and claimed that God is dead, and yet, how are we acting? How is our beliefs carrying out into our daily lives? For those of us who may be struggling to understand the blessed state we read in our chapter, that blessed state we possess in Christ. The book of Hebrews has two encouraging truths about drawing near to a faithful God and holding fast to our confession of hope. So if you will this morning, turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. 
Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to start in verse 19 and read down to 23. I really, really wanted to get down to 25, but as I progressed in my studies, I thought it wise. I will let you ponder upon 24 and 25 at home. <laughs> so, and I think we will have some practical outworking of it as we go through. So, Hebrews 10, starting in 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So ladies, the epistle of Hebrews here is a study in contrast between the imperfect and incomplete provisions of the old covenant given under Moses and the infinitely better provisions of the new covenant offered by the perfect high priest, God's only son and the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Included in these better provisions are a better hope, a better testament, a better promise, a better sacrifice, a better substance, a better country, and a better resurrection. Those who belong to the new covenant dwell in a completely new and heavenly atmosphere. They worship a heavenly savior, have a heavenly calling, receive a heavenly gift, are citizens of a heavenly country, and look forward to a heavenly Jerusalem and have their very names written in heaven. As we read this week in our chapter, we are, if we are trusting in Christ as our Savior, we are citizens of that heavenly country. So, in order for us as believers and citizens of this heavenly country to understand the blessed state we find ourselves in, the first encouraging truth we need to embrace is, number one on your outlines, let us draw near. Now, before we dive into what it means to draw near, there are two things we need to understand from our text. Since the writer takes the time to lay them out first, we'll take the time to go over them first. So A on your outlines, we have the two preconditions to drawing near. So number one, our first command in our passage is let us draw near. But before we get there, A, we have the two preconditions to drawing near. Look down at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. So ladies, when we come to scripture and we see the word therefore, what do we need to ask ourselves? What is it there for? Excellent. So just as we covered in our little overview of the epistle of Hebrews, the writer is pointing back to his original arguments of the supremacy of the Messiah, Christ the Savior. 
he's reading, he's writing to the Hebrews, and that therefore points back to his argument, which he started in chapter 8, verse 1, and he continues out all the way to the preceding verse in 1018. He unfolds the blessings of the new covenant and lays out the doctrines of the better sacrifice and priesthood of Christ that bleeds into the exhortation he's about to give in our passage that we're going to go over today. You have to remember, you've got to have correct doctrine that bleeds out to correct application of that doctrine. And here in our verse, we see the word brethren. The writer is constantly going to be going back to the fact of we are a family. We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We are part of the family of God. So what doctrine do we need to look at first? Number one on your outlines. We see that we can have confidence through Christ. Confidence through Christ. In verse 19 again, he says, Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now remember, this epistle is written to the Hebrews, so we need to remember our Old Testaments as we're moving forward. This instantly would have brought to mind both the tabernacle and the temple. So you'll remember that the tabernacle only had one entrance. On entering, a priest would be standing in the holy place. Remember, can anyone who was an Israelite go into the tabernacle willy-nilly? No. Only priests could go in. So as you enter in that first room, you're in the holy place. There were three articles of furniture. One was the golden lampstand, which kept burning continually, giving light to the holy place. The other was the table of showbread. Again, only the priest could eat of it, and it was refreshed once a week. And I love that these beautiful pictures are fulfilled in Christ because he is the light of the world, and he is the bread of life. So you have these things in that holy place. The final article in the holy place was the altar of incense. Special incense was to be burned each morning and evening as an offering to the Lord. The holy place was set apart, that's what holy means, set apart because it was special representation and reminder of the presence of God. At the back of the holy place, you'll remember, there was a smaller chamber called what? The Holy of Holies, very good. Or sometimes called the most holy place. And in this smaller room contained the Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark was a special area called the Mercy Seat. This was seen by all the Jewish people as the very throne of God. While God is omnipresent, the location was seen as a special place for God to dwell in the midst of his people. This second chamber could only be entered by the high priest on one day of the year, the Day of Atonement, and only with a blood sacrifice. The high priest would enter the most holy place with smoke from the altar of incense to help shield his view and sprinkle the blood of the ark 
on the Ark of the Covenant to atone for the sins of the people. Anyone who entered this chamber when he was not supposed to, what was the sentence? Death. The tabernacle and the temple emphasized the presence of God in the midst of his people. God was always there and accessible, but at the same time, the holy place and the most holy place emphasized God's holiness and his inaccessibility due to the sins of the people. So here he is a special dwelling of God in the midst of his people. Literally, when they had the tabernacle, they built the tribe around and the tabernacles at the core. A normal Jewish man or woman would never dare to come into the holy place. And only the high priests in the holy holies on the day of atonement. It's funny, I was putting something in my calendar and I saw Yom Kippur. That is what they call the day of Atonement, it's coming up on October 5th, just in case you're curious. But it's still in our calendars today. Isn't that amazing? Here we are thousands of years later, and yet on the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur is on my little nobody phone in the calendar still. So, but that day of atonement, the people would come to the tabernacle to bring their offerings, but always had to stay outside of the tabernacle itself. From a distance, they worshiped their one true God. Only the priests could mediate between the common man and God and offer those sacrifices. And yet now, the writer of Hebrews is letting his audience know that not only could they have access to the presence of God, but we can have confidence in that entrance. That word confidence there, it's free and fearless confidence, cheerful courage, boldness, assurance. Now again, just as we just said, what happened to a high priest when he went into the Holy of Holies in an unworthy manner? He would be dead. Or to someone else, if they tried to go in and they were not a Levitical priest, he would be dead. And now we have this stark contrast because the blood of Christ we can have free access to the very presence of God. Can you imagine what it was like for these Hebrew believers hearing these reassuring words? You have to imagine their entire belief system had been four years, their entire lives had been completely turned upside down. Their lives were built around the sacrificial system. Their calendars were built around the different feasts and around the first tabernacle and then the temple, trips to the temple. And all of a sudden, all of that wiped away. No more blood, no more need of sacrifices, no need for priests or trips to a temple. All had been accomplished by the blood of Christ. Look down at verse 20. It continues on by saying, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. That word inaugurated there means to initiate, consecrate, dedicate, or open. And I really find that last definition to be very, very enlightening, to open a new and living way. So through Christ's blood, 
we have a new and living way to have access to the presence of God. We do not have to stay back and not enter the holy place. Christ himself opened this new way in which sinful man can come to God with confidence. Yvonne last week pointed us to the fact that we have a living hope because it's held by a living God. Christ provided the new and living way so that we could have this living hope by his death, burial, and resurrection. This new way being open is shown to us when we look at what happened at the crucifixion. Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51 tell us, And Jesus cried out again, it's Christ on the cross, cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Could you imagine being one of the priests ministering in the temple on that day? Standing there, you have the Holy of Holies. You don't dare go in because it's not day of, trying to think, was it day of atonement? I think it was. <laughs> Anyways, you're standing ministering in the temple. Let's focus there. And then all of a sudden, the sky goes black. The earth beneath your feet starts shaking. And this huge veil is torn, not bottom to top, top to bottom. Now, just for us to grasp, because again, have y'all been in a tabernacle temple lately? No. So Jewish tradition tells us that this veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, and the thickness of the palm of the hand. So this was not a little piece of chiffon that you can rip easily. This was a huge curtain and from top to bottom was torn in two. At the death of our Savior, a way was opened for us to enter into the Holy Holies and draw near to our great God. Amazing done. This living way um, that said the new and living way there in verse 20, have you ever considered the old covenant depended on the death of animals? And yet, the new way depends on a living Savior. John 14, 6 tells us, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And too, we can never pass over lightly the words, his flesh. The second person of the Godhead took on human flesh in order for a way to be able to be made between sinful man and a holy God, to be the only possible mediator. His, O'Brien tells us in his commentary, his obedient death on the cross was the means by which free access to the heavenly sanctuary was attained. So ladies, as we ponder these things, as we compare Old Testament to New Testament, the message of the new covenant is not do, it's done. Sorry. 
we do not need to clean ourselves up to come into the presence of a holy God. We can never be clean enough. We do not have to bring sacrifices and offerings in order to win favor with God. We do not have confidence in our own ability of keeping the law or doing enough righteous deeds. We cannot do enough in order to be worthy of being in the presence of a living God. It is only through the sacrifice of the blood of Christ that makes a way for us to step through that veil. So, not only do we have confidence through Christ as the first precondition of drawing near, we also have number two on your outlines, representation in Christ. Thank you. Representation in Christ. Look down in your Bibles at verse 21. And since we have a great high priest, excuse me, great priest over the house of God. And ladies, again, it's my desire for us to understand what's underneath this because we are kind of separated from these thought patterns, right? We're not Old Testament believers. We haven't experienced ourselves what it's like to have to bring a lamb or bring the different offerings, bring a grain offering, bring these different things in order to fulfill what God has commanded. So as we, we look in here, no longer do we need a high priest to go before God on our behalf. God sent a perfect priest for all time, not one who had to sacrifice for his own sins before he is able to sacrifice on our behalf like the Old Testament priest did, but one who is without sin. Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Wayne Matt says, Jesus fulfilled all the expectations that were prefigured, so that were presented in the Old Testament. Those were pictures of Christ to come. He not only fulfilled all those expectations in the Old Testament sacrifices, but also in the lives and the actions of the priest who offered him. He was both the sacrifice and the priest who offered the sacrifice. He fulfilled both those roles. He was the sacrifice and he is our great high priest. Priests in the Old Testament had the job of going between man and God to bring sacrifices and also to pray to God on behalf of the people. Hebrews 7.25 points out, Therefore he, meaning Christ, is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And then Hebrews 8.1 tells us, now the main point and what has been said. So here's the writer. He's saying, here you go. Here's my main point of everything I've just said in the last seven chapters. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So ladies, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And what is he doing? 
He ever intercedes for us, bringing our particular requests before the Father. Our confidence is not based on ourselves. Our confidence, our cheerful courage is based on our high priest who is in heaven interceding for us right at this moment, seated at the right hand of the Father, praying our requests to the Father on behalf of his people. Why do we worry? Why are we anxious when we have such a lovely one praying for us? Do we believe that? Is this reality in our lives right now? The tears is from guilt, but also gratitude. We know us, I know me. I don't deserve to stand here and even say these things to you. But it's not based on me or my performance. Only by Christ do I dare stand here and say anything. And that is my longing for you. Would we as sisters join hands and this become real to us? That a lost and dying world would look at us and say, they have hope. Where is that coming from? Because the world around us, there is no hope, right, ladies? And yet, we can have cheerful confidence that we can come before a living God and have hope. Now, that house of God, that phrase, we have a great priest over the house of God. What is the house of God? Well, Hebrews 3, 6. I love Hebrews because he just cross-references himself all the time. So in Hebrews 3, 6, he lays it out for us. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, the Father's house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So Christ is the faithful son who is over in an authoritative way all of us who are believers. We who are in the household of God. We can have cheerful confidence to come before God's throne on the basis of the new and living way that Christ opened for us by the offering of himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And he is our representative before the throne of God as our priest, as he intercedes on our behalf. Because of the truth of these two preconditions, since we can have confidence to come into the holy place, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we can, with confidence, draw near to God. Hebrews 4.16, I think a great many of you could probably quote it with me, says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence, there's our word again, to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So here, these are almost like bookends to what Hebrews is saying. We can draw near. What is our purpose for drawing near according to Hebrews 4? 
with confidence to the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and find grace to help in that time of need. And if you back up a little bit, and we'll talk about it in a minute, but Christ is a sympathetic high priest. He knows our frailties. He knows our frames. So that's why we can go forward with confidence. We don't need to shrink back. We don't need to say, oh, here I go again. I'm so weak. I just can't. Good. You're right. You can't. Run to the throne of grace so that you can receive that mercy and receive grace to help in time of need. So there's those two preconditions. So now let's talk through B on your outlines, the manner of drawing near. Look down at verse 22. We, we see the first, how are we to draw near? It says, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. So to draw near to God is in order to seek his grace or his favor. So ladies, this is the very goal. Drawing near to God is the very goal of salvation and the very heart of being a Christian. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, are we able to come into the Lord's presence? No. Do we even desire to come into the Lord's presence? No, we were dead. But if and <clears throat> we can't come into the Lord's presence, and if sinful man appeared before a holy God, he would be instantly consumed by God's holiness. Notice, if we need to draw near, then that seems to imply that we started, what? Separated, way far off. So as we think through this, this drawing near to God, sometimes there's different ways in which people will draw near to God, different attitudes that they might have as they draw near. For instance, like on a Sunday morning, when we draw together, we come together as a body of believers and we sing and we hear scripture and we rejoice in what God has done for us. But what are some possible attitudes or manners that we have as we're drawing near? For some of us, we might struggle with the formality of it, the formal. This person comes to church, they wear the right clothes, they say the right things, but the drawing near to worship is just a duty. This is what good people do, so this is what I do. So I just need that one more check mark on my box before I can go on with my day. They do not delight in thinking about drawing near to God. They're just concerned, did we do everything right? Is everything in order? All right, now I can go on with my day. And just the formal ritualness of it. Or you can also have some people who are flippant. So you have somebody who's formal or you can have somebody who's flippant. Familiarity can breed contempt. This person has been to every meeting and shrugs their shoulders at the worship of God. As they draw together with the body of Christ to worship God, they've been to church, you know, a thousand times. And 
why do we have to pray so long or preach so long or sing so many songs? They know that they sin and they know that God will continue to forgive. So they're careless to watch the way they worship or even think about the Lord. They work on their spiritual disciplines, you know, only if they have time or if they truly feel like it. So sometimes instead of being that rigid formality, you've got the opposite and you've got that flippant. Eh, if I get to it, nah, that's all right. Give it a take. Or maybe maybe not the first two. Maybe you'll have some something with the third. Formal, flippant, or fearful. And this person, it's not a godly fear. It's a servile, craven fear of the Lord. Not the kind that's the beginning of the wisdom or a reverential awe of God. This person thinks that maybe God's forgiveness is just too good to be true. And they're afraid of God's punishment that they feel like is just waiting around the corner. The guilt of their own sin is overwhelming to them. They believe that the promises of God are true, but maybe not just for them. What they have done is just too wicked for God to be able to forgive. Or they sin so many times in the same way that surely God has had enough of them saying they're sorry again. Those little seeds of doubt, those times of not sure, they look at themselves and say, how could God forgive someone like me? So they stay in a state of fear. Or, in contrast, we have some who come fully joyful and confident. This person draws near to God, knowing that the access to the Lord doesn't depend on their performance, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. This person sings with Charles Wesley, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. This, ladies, is the correct manner of drawing near. And ladies, is it not true, our own hearts? We can weave in and out of any of those. We can struggle with any one of those, sometimes all in the same morning. So we could be formal. It's got to be done just the right way. Better get it all right. Better to have all your T's crossed and all your dots. Oh, all your dots eyed. <laughs> all your eyes dotted. Or you can be flippant. Ah, uh, who cares? I'll, I'll get to it if I have time. Or you can be fearful, not trusting the promises of God for you, or fully joyful and confident. Christ is mine, and I am his, and it's all his work on the cross. So as we think through, how do I draw near to the Lord? Are you searching your heart? Are you careful to be reverent and in awe, but not allowing yourself to trip over into the sinful side of fear? not trusting the Lord and his promises? Are you focused in 
on who God is, his character, his work for us. So the manner of drawing near, the writer of Hebrews opens up for us a little bit. Number one on your outlines, their text tells us next what we need to draw near with. Number one, a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Some of us, when we hear the word sincere, when talking about our faith, we think it means if we really, really mean it. God, if I didn't mean it last time, I really, really mean it this time. And that's what brings to mind. But sincere here is a single in purpose and single of intent. It's defined as true. It's undivided. So it's singular in purpose, singular in intent. It's undivided. A sincere heart has its eyes solely fixed on what we are sure of in our faith. The objective truth, objective meaning it does not change. The objective truth that Christ made a new and living way for us and is in, in heaven as our priests interceding for us in that making a new way for us, there's an element of the objective truth in our justification by faith alone. This truth is what spurred Martin Luther in his personal salvation, and then God worked through him to change the entire world in the Protestant Reformation. The scripture that pricked Martin Luther's heart was Romans 1.17, for in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. This does not mean we need to dredge up our faith as if we mean it enough or if we are sincere enough. Then, then if, we're, if we're sincere enough, we'll be saved. If we just pull ourselves up by our spiritual bootstraps and we mean it enough, we will be saved. That would be a works of righteousness, a works righteousness, something we have done. R.C. Sproul said the church in Martin Luther's day understood the doctrine of justification. So this is the Catholic church. It understands the doctrine of justification is what happens when God, through the sacraments of the church and elsewhere, meaning other good works, make unrighteous people righteous. So you hear what he's saying there. It's what they have done. The Catholic church says you do your sacraments, you go to mass, you do good works, and you work your way to draw near to God, and then Christ and his sacrifice will complete the rest. That is what they believed. Luther really struggled with the idea before he came to Christ, struggled with the idea that a righteous, holy God would expect sinful man to be holy as he is holy when God knew that man is sinful and could not be righteous. Back to R.C. Sproul. But Luther was looking now at the Greek word there in the phrase righteousness of God, which didn't mean to make righteous, but rather to regard as righteous, to count as righteous, to declare as righteous. And this was a moment of awakening for Luther. He said, you mean here Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people 
who don't have righteousness of their own? And so Luther, I'm quoting R.C., and so Luther said, whoa, you mean the righteousness by which I will be saved is not mine? It's what he called an alien righteousness, a righteousness that belongs properly to someone else. It's a righteousness that is outside of us, namely the righteousness of Christ. And Luther said, when I discovered that, that no longer it's not his righteousness and then Christ covers the rest, but that it's Christ's righteousness freely given to him by grace. He said, when I discovered that, I was born again of the Holy Ghost and the doors of paradise, paradise swung open and I walked through. So we must understand that in our justification, there are two sides, also known as the great exchange. Wayne Mack in Systematic Theology says, justification is, a, is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he, number one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us, and number two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. He goes on to explain. So kind of this helps us put it all together when we're thinking about us and our salvation and drawing near to God. The gospel call goes out in which God calls us to trust in Christ for salvation. Then regeneration in which God imparts new spiritual life to us and then conversion in which we respond to the gospel call in repentance for sin and faith in Christ for salvation. Ephesians 2 is clear that even the faith we have is a gift of God. Then justification is God's applying redemption to us in that he does what he promised, that is, declare our sins to be forgiven. This must be a legal declaration concerning our relationship to God's laws, stating that we are completely forgiven and no longer liable for punishment. So what does this mean for us? The joy that our assurance of faith is not if we meant it enough, our assurance of faith is not in our own sincerity. Our full assurance of faith has a single focus. It is based on Christ's complete obedience and righteousness and his full atonement, payment for our sins on the cross. Now when we draw near to God, he does not see our sins. He sees his son's perfect righteousness applied to us. And that, ladies, is why we can have cheerful confidence as we draw near. So the manner in which we draw near is with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, as well as, number two, hearts sprinkled clean. Verse 22 says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Now, the word sprinkled there would have resonated with the hearers of the letter to the Hebrews. Moses sprinkled the people of Israel in Exodus 24. 
It says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that word sprinkled signifies things cleansed in the presence of God. It delivers us from a guilty conscience. But were the people of Israel faithful to obey the book of the covenant and the law of God? No. So the high priest had to once a year go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the people. We who are able to draw near to God have had our hearts sprinkled clean from our evil conscience. Evil there means a soul conscience of wickedness. So it's conscience of its own wickedness. We were rightly accused and condemned, but, but God, ladies, but by Christ's sacrifice, we are freed from the burden of guilt. The believers to which 1 Peter was written to were chosen, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So not only are we able to draw near having a sincere heart with full assurance, having our hearts sprinkled clear, clean, but also, number three, bodies washed. So look back down at 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This washing, ladies, would point back to the ceremonial cleansing of the priests from the bronze labor in which they would wash their hands and feet in preparation of service. That washed there means being cleansed from defilement. So we're freed from a guilty conscience, having our hearts sprinkled, and now our bodies washed, being freed from the defilement of sin. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we are encouraged to draw near to God, but we are also encouraged to, number two, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Dropping your eyes down to verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So confession of hope. This is the hope that we confess. We maintain a 
firm, cheerful confidence that all that God has said he will do and all things will come to pass. Our confession is our open declaration of allegiance to our God. It's, it's an open allegiance. That word under, underneath it is an allegiance to a person. So that's our allegiance. And our only hope is in Christ. As Yvonne quoted last week, a hope that holds the future in the present because of the past. So here we have that hope that we can hold on to. It's the already, but not yet. It's coming, but it's sure, it's fast. It is true for us today. We have that hope because Christ is our sacrifice and because he is our great high priest, because he is ever interceding for us before the Father. We can cling to what we are confessing our hope to be. As Yvonne taught us from 1 Peter, our hope is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, and is reserved for us in heaven. So since these things are true, we can hold fast, A, without wavering. Without wavering, that word wavering there, it's not inclining, firm, unmoved. Brian Borgman said it's without leaning over and wobbling. Um, just as a side note, Brian Borgman has an excellent um, exposition to the Hebrews. It's, I believe it's 189 sermons if you want to go on there and listen to it. Um, but I have not listened to all 189, let me be clear. I have listened to a section of them, and they're excellent. Um, very excited that you guys get to hear him in just a couple weeks. He's one of our speakers for Essentials, but is, is one of uh, the gentlemen I study. As I joked with Ron, I was like, me and Brian are going to go hang out in the office. I'm going to go study, and I listen to him preach and take notes furiously as he preaches through Hebrews. So, um, but just a delight. But he said, this is without leaning over and wobbling. Ladies, this is somebody who's not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but single in purpose because our eyes are fixed on Christ. We can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Be on your outlines because God is faithful Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So the basis of our holding fast is not our own strength. Brian Borgman again says, hold fast, hang in there, because you are being held. There's that lovely tension there. We are to hold fast, but we are the ones being held by Christ. The writer here is encouraging us to hold fast, not trying to cause us to doubt whether we are holding fast. Do you see the difference? Yes, it's a command, but he's encouraging you to do it, not, are you doing it? It's no, hold fast, hang on, because your eternity is based on Christ's work on the cross. He will hold you fast. He will hold you until the day of completion. So that, that word hope there 
is the sum of God's promises for us in the present and the future, which have been secured for us by the priestly work and sacrifice of Jesus. Martin Luther said, I must constantly insist that death and sin and hell have been conquered, although I still feel sometimes like I'm under the power of sin and death and hell. Do you hear what he's saying there? You've got to preach loudly to yourself sometimes. You have to insist it has been conquered. No matter how I feel, I must insist because it's true, because God said it is true. We hold fast, not in how we are feeling, but to the unchanging faithfulness of God's character. He also said, since these promises of God are holy, true, righteous, and peaceful words, full of goodness, the soul which clings to them with a firm faith will be so closely united with them and altogether absorbed by them that that it, the soul, will not only share in all their power, but will be saturated and intoxicated by them. Do you hear what he's saying? The promises of God, if you cling so tightly to them, you will share in the power of them because you're saturated. When life squeezes you, ladies, what comes out? Does God's promises come out? Or does your own sinfulness come out? We want to be saturated with it, intoxicated. So as you're struggling through, maybe you're struggling with your assurance of faith. Could it be that you're looking too much to yourself and your own sincerity or your own trying to gain God's favor favor by your good performance instead of relying completely on Christ's sacrifice and character of our great God? To strengthen your faith, it would be worth your time to consider the faithfulness of God as revealed in Scripture over and over and over again, even to a people who are sinful, over and over and over again. Read Scripture. Look at the faithfulness of God. Despite his people, he is faithful and he is good. I close with this. Katie Luther, her last words recorded were, I will stick to Christ as a bird to a coat. And I love that. She clung to the promises of God in Christ throughout her life. I love that thought. I have nothing else and I am nothing. Just a bird sticking to the only thing I can, Christ himself. So ladies, as we go to discussion time and as you go home today, what are you holding fast to? What are you clinging to tightly? Let's pray.